If you would turn to Revelation chapter 2, we've already heard from chapter 1, which leads right up to where we're going to be in chapter 2. I'm thinking this morning about our church, about the church and ours. Um, I'm thinking about how, you know, we tend to understand church as we come to this place and we talk a lot about Jesus, we talk to Jesus, we sing a lot about Jesus, we sing to Jesus, and I too often forget that one of the primary reasons we gather each week like this is to listen to Jesus, and that's, that's what we do every week. We listen to him because Jesus has something to say to his churches. Jesus has something to say to this church every week. He says, as we'll read in a moment, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what my spirit says to the churches. Jesus has something to say to us this morning. What is it? Before we hear Jesus speak to us through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I want us to hear what Jesus had to say to that same church 30 years later. And I wonder if what Jesus had to say to them at their 30th year will help us listen better in the coming months to what he had to say to them in their first years as he wrote, as he spoke to them through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So let's hear Jesus speak to his churches this morning and to us. And we'll do that as we hear a part of a letter that Jesus sent to his churches through John. The letter is called Revelation. The whole book. We're going to look at a piece. So let's stand and hear the word of the God who loves us. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You'll remember Paul has, I mean, John has just seen Jesus in all of his glory and his powerful voice. And now Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not And found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Please be seated. Father, help us to hear what Jesus has to say to us this morning as his church. Help us to trust him. Help us to respond to him by the power of your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I read this week about a young woman who recently wondered aloud whether she has a sign around her neck, invisible to her, that solicits strangers for advice. She said that during a recent routine trip to her favorite cafe, no fewer than four people offered her unsolicited advice on crossing the street, choosing a pastry, and on what she should be reading. Unsolicited advice. We love it, don't we? What do you do with unsolicited advice? Do you have an ear for it or do you ignore it? What makes you listen to and act on someone's advice anyway, even if it's advice you didn't ask for? For me, it matters who this person is who's offering me this advice. Do they have the right to give me advice? Do I have a relationship with them? Do they know me and love me? Do, do I know and love them? Do I trust them? Am I convinced that this person has my best interests at heart? If so, I'm willing to listen to even their unsolicited advice. It also matters to me what they have to say. Uh, first of all, do they even know what they're talking about? Are, are they experts on the matter? Do they have experience in the matter? Has their advice proven to be valuable in the past? Is what they're saying vitally important? Maybe something about my character, or is it something more trivial, like something about my wardrobe? These questions have a lot to do with whether I will hear and act on the advice I've been given. And so I want us to consider those questions this morning as we look at this unsolicited letter to the Ephesian church from Jesus. Why should the church listen to what Jesus has to say in his letter? What does Jesus have to say to them? And how should the church respond to what Jesus has to say? The first question, why should Jesus listen to what Jesus has to say in his letter? The church should listen to Jesus because of who he is. Jesus is their glorious God. He's the son of man foretold by the prophet. Uh, we read this morning, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Jesus is giving us a picture of his glory He's the glorious God. We should listen to him. But he's also their conquering king. Nathan read this earlier. Jesus said, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He died and shed his blood for their sins, but he's alive forevermore, having conquered the death that the Ephesians deserved. 
And this sounds like the Jesus Paul described in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1. The Jesus whom God, Paul said, raised from the dead and seated at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Will the church listen to this Jesus? They should because of who he is. But why else should the church listen to Jesus? They should listen to him because of the relationship he has with them. We didn't read it this morning, but early in chapter 1 of Revelation, in verses 5 and 6, John introduced Jesus as the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. So the church should listen to Jesus because he loves them. He's freed them from their sins. He's made them his kingdom, priests to his God. Well, what else does Jesus say about his relationship with his church? Look at uh, <coughs> chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Nathan read in chapter 1 this morning that the seven stars that Jesus is holding are the angels of each of these seven churches, one angel for each church. Now, we're not sure who these angels are. Are they guardian angels? Maybe, possibly. Some think that maybe the angels, since the word angel means messenger, perhaps the angels represent the pastor teacher of that church, of that congregation. Maybe, but whatever your interpretation of who the angels are, each of these stars is closely, closely associated with each church. There's, there's some sort of representative of that church. So the more important question is, who holds these representatives of the churches? Jesus holds them. So Jesus is assuring each church, listen to me because I'm holding you. I've got you. In my grip, we're in a relationship with the one who holds us, and so we listen to him. What else does Jesus say about his relationship with the church? Again, in, in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We learned in chapter 1 that each of those lampstands represented each of the seven churches you can understand why. They were meant to be a light that pushes back the darkness. So each church is a lampstand. And Jesus says he walks among them. So Jesus is assuring each church, listen to me. I'm with you. I'm walking with you. Whenever two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am. I'm with you. You've got my attention. You've got my presence. And so Jesus says to his church, Jesus says to us, Mountain Fellowship, the words I'm speaking are the words of the one who loves you. You'll never be without my affection. I love you. The words I'm speaking are the words of the one who holds you. You'll never be without my protection. I've got you. The words 
that I'm speaking are the words of the one who walked among you. You'll never be without my presence. I am with you always, Mountain Fellowship, even to the end of the age. And now this is someone we want to listen to, isn't it? At this point, the church at Ephesus and the church called Mountain Fellowship should be on the edge of their seats. What would this great and glorious Jesus who loves us so much want to say to us? Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And that's where we go next. What does Jesus have to say to his church? I had the privilege for about six years um, to have a leadership coach who, who coached me at my former church and at this church. Um, his name is Charles. Charles was great. Charles was also, is also a PCA pastor. He's got lots of experience in pastoring. He's older than me, but he's also a, a trained and experienced executive leadership coach. And Charles would always ask me at least two questions when we got together. He would always ask, okay, Jimmy, as you think back on the last two weeks and the leadership situations you were in, what did you do well? What did you do well? He wanted to reinforce what I did well so that I would continue to do those things well. And we'd talk about that, and then he would ask, okay, now, what do you need to work on? And we would discover attitudes of the heart or skills of leadership that needed more attention from me. They needed more work. There was always more work to be done. And then at the end of our time, I'd, I'd come up with some action steps that I would take in response to what I had discovered about myself. This is what Jesus is doing for the church in Ephesus. Here's what you're doing well, and here's what you need to work on. Except in this case, he's not asking the question, he's telling. So in verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, here's what you're doing well, church. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. And then in verse 4, Jesus says, here's what you need to work on. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So let's look at those two things. What, what did Jesus know they had done well? What did Jesus know they needed to work on? What did he know they needed to, that they did well? Three things. He knew their hard work. He knew their patient endurance. And he knew their commitment to true teaching. He knew their hard work. In verse 2, he said, I know your works, your toil. That's, that's a strong word of, of energetic work. Verse 3, and you've not grown weary. For 30 years, they had followed the example of the Apostle Paul, who in Acts 20 said these words to the Ephesian elders before he left them for the last time. He said, in all things I have shown you, that by working hard, that's the same word as toil in Revelation, Revelation 2. I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
What did they work hard doing? They worked hard to meet the physical and financial needs of others. They were, they were serving their own people, the people in Ephesus. They were working hard to do it. But what else did Jesus know about them that they did well? He knew their patient endurance. In verse 2, he said, I know your patient endurance. He says it again in verse 3, I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. The question is, what would they need to patiently endure? What is it that they're bearing up under? And it's the pressure and persecution that comes with living in Ephesus. The pressure and the persecution that comes with living in Ephesus. Ephesus, by the time this letter got there, scholars believe that it was a city of about 250,000 people. It was a a cosmopolitan city, uh, probably the New York City or the L.A. of Asia Minor. But there were pressures that God's people felt living in that city, in that culture. Here, Here are a few of them. There's the pressure to make life about living the good life. Listen, we would probably all, most of us, love to live in Ephesus. It was a wealthy city. It was a center of international commerce. But on the downside, there was a huge divide between the wealthy and the poor. And there were many poor. But overall, it was a wealthy city. There was lots of shopping in Ephesus. Ephesus. It had a huge marketplace. Sports were big in Ephesus. They've uncovered this gigantic stadium for sport. Entertainment was huge in Ephesus. They've uncovered an outdoor theater that seats 24,000 people. So God's people lived under the pressure to make life about living the good life in Ephesus. What else? What other pressures? The pressure to make life about a false religion. Uh, The temple of Artemis, the goddess Artemis, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was in Ephesus. She was the goddess of outdoor sport, hunting, wilderness, and she was the goddess of childbirth. Two things that are very, very important to people in Chattanooga, Tennessee. (laughs) Hiking and having babies. (laughs) We love the outdoors and we love our children. In Acts 19, there was this huge commotion that took place and they swept up Paul and some of the other believers and went into that 24,000 seat arena and at one point knowing that Paul and these others were preaching this other God named Jesus they started shouting and and Luke says in Acts chapter 2 it's hard to believe this but he says specifically for two solid hours they shouted in one voice great is Artemis of the Ephesians great is Artemis of the Ephesians kind of like it's great to be a Tennessee Vol or whatever we say so imagine that shout There's the pressure to make life about this false religion. And even their commerce, their money was tied to that religion. And then there was the pressure to make life about political power. Ephesus was not just full of temples 
to other gods, but temples built to worship Roman emperors and governors. And we think, well, that's weird. We don't worship our politicians. But maybe this is a way to say it. For the Ephesians, politics had become another religion. And we are religious about our politics. So the persecution then that came uh, was coming from the pressure of this culture on God's people. They received persecution for not giving in to the pressure to live for the good life, to live for false gods, to live for political power. But there was a lot of pressure. And so they had to patiently endure. And I wonder, could Jesus commend the church in America for not caving in to the pressure of making life about living for the good life, of making life about other gods, about, of making life about political power? So what else did Jesus know and commend about the Ephesian church? He knew and commended their commitment to true teaching. He says in verse 2, I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. These folks were committed to the truth of the Bible, and they were discerning about those who were not teaching the truth of the Bible, and they tested them and rejected them. They were committed to biblical truth. And with good reason, in the book book of Acts, we find that the church in Ephesus was planted by a a man named Apollos, whom Luke said was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, who spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Who followed Apollos? The apostle Paul came in, and for at least two years, maybe three Luke says that Paul reasoned and persuaded them about the kingdom of God, reasoning daily with these new disciples of Jesus. They had Apollos, they had Paul, and then we know that Timothy later became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And then church history tells us that the apostle John spent his remaining years there living with the people of the church of Ephesus, shepherding them. Can you imagine having that legacy of faithful preaching and teaching in in your church. Apollos, Paul, Timothy, John. No wonder Jesus could commend them for their commitment to true teaching. What about us? What about this generation? This generation in in the American church has more biblical truth at its fingertips than any other in history. It should be said about us that we are committed to being accurately taught the things concerning Jesus. It should be. Now, some of you may be surprised that Jesus would say, you're doing something well. Uh, Too often we feel like that all Jesus really cares about is pointing out what we're not doing well. But in this case, he's commending them. He's saying, this is what you're doing well. And so I want to tell you something. If you're working hard to give yourself away in his name, 
if you're patiently enduring and not caving into the cultural pressure around you, if you are committed to knowing God's word and resisting false teaching, then Jesus says to you this morning, well done. Thank you. Well done. And so Jesus was loving the Ephesian church right where they are, encouraging them for what they did well. But he loved them too much to leave them where they are. He wanted more for them. So in love, still in love, he told them what they needed to work on. And so what did Jesus know the Ephesian church needed to work on? Anyone looking from the outside at this church would see that they were hardworking, patiently enduring, committed to true teaching about Jesus, but there was something that only Jesus would know best about his churches. Jesus Jesus knows their heart. And so he says, I have this against you. Imagine hearing those chilling words from Jesus. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And in saying this, Jesus is simply confirming what Paul taught in his famous chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13. A church can toil and labor to give away all they have, even even give away their bodies to be burned. And if they don't have love, they gain nothing. A church can have faith that moves mountains and gives strength to patiently endure. But if they don't have love, they are nothing, Paul says. A church can speak with the tongues of angels and have the best Bible teaching in town. But if they don't have love, they're just making a lot of noise, Paul says. So what is this love that's missing? What's this love that Jesus says is missing that they've abandoned? And the commentators are all over the place about this. There's not a whole lot of agreement on which love he's talking about. Are we talking about Love for people that don't know Jesus yet. That's what some say. Have they abandoned love for other Christians? That's what some commentators say. Have they abandoned love for Jesus himself? That's what some say. And that's kind of how I've always understood it. But, but perhaps he, he's saying that they've abandoned the love that Jesus first showed them. Well, forget the commentators. Let's let the Bible help us interpret the Bible. Because when we do, I think we'll find that it's all of the above. I said that John spent his remaining years in Ephesus. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 4 about love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love not that we have loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins beloved he says if god so loved us we also ought to love one another so that's god's love for us which overflows into love for one another and then john sums it up in verse 19 he says we love both God and people, because he first loved us. So John's saying there's a connection between God's love for us and our love for him and others. First, God loves us by sending Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins so that we're drawn into loving relationship with him. Then, 
in response to and reliance upon his first love for us, we love him and people. When we love Jesus, because Jesus loved us, we will love people. John said, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So Jesus and the the apostles never separated these three loves, God's love for us, our love for him, our love for others. They all come together because the love for God and the love for others flows from his love for us. And so when Jesus says we've abandoned the love that we had at first, He's talking about it all, I think. The church in Ephesus had abandoned the love for one another and love for people in Ephesus that they had at first. Why? Because they had left the love for Jesus that they had at first. Why did they leave their love for Jesus? Because they had forgotten the love that Jesus first had for them. And Paul Paul knew when he wrote to the Ephesians, he knew that that last one, the love that Christ has for his church, was the most crucial piece of all the loves. And that's why he told the Ephesians 30 years earlier, I bow my knees before the the Father to pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The first love that we need first is the love that he showed us first. And I wonder... And I've had to ask myself, is it the love Jesus has for me that I've abandoned? Because that's the love that will produce my love for him and love for people. The sign, perhaps, that I've abandoned the love that Jesus has for me first, the sign is, My affection for him has grown cold. My compassion for people and my concern for people has grown cold. To abandon the love we had at first is to abandon them all. Some of you might be surprised that Jesus would have, that Jesus would say you have more to work on. Perhaps you think that if Jesus really loved you, he wouldn't ask for more from you. But listen to what Jesus is saying. That more that Jesus wants from you is to know and enjoy his love for you more. And if you know and and enjoy the love of Jesus, it will free you from making wealth your first love. It will free you from making shopping your first love. It will free you from making entertainment your first love or sports your first love. It'll free you from making your children your first love. It'll free you from making political power your first love. Let the love of Jesus, the love that Jesus have for you, has for you, free you to live the way that he created and redeemed you to live with Jesus and for people. 
at the end of each of my coaching sessions with Charles, he would ask me to come up with some action steps that I would take in response to what I had discovered in our time together. Well, Jesus isn't asking for us to tell him what the action steps are we need to take. He leaves no room for doubt. He tells us. He tells us how the church should respond to what he has said. In verse 5, three things. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and redo the works that you did at first. Remember, repent, and redo. Remember how you've fallen from your first love. Think back, he says, to when you first heard the good news of my love for you and my living and dying for you. Remember how I wanted you and you wanted me, how, how you wanted others to want me. Remember how far you've fallen from that first love. And then repent. Repent, what does that look like? Just come to me, Jesus says, and talk to me about all this. I know, I've just said, I know you've lost your first love. So come and talk to me. Turn to me. Come. Talk back. Talk with me. Turn back to me. Look away from all the other loves and listen to me again. And then redo the works you did at first. What, what does that mean? Is that some sort of work salvation? No, it's, it's redo works that flow out of the first love. And so I, I tried to think, what does that look like? To redo those works. And so I wrote wrote these thoughts. I said, Jesus, if I'm going to work hard, it's not going to be working hard for you, but working hard with you. As a pastor, this is what I do all the time. I work hard for Jesus. But the way I did it at first was to work hard with Jesus. With him in his glorious resurrection power. With him holding me in his hand. With him walking beside me. With his love for the people I was serving. With his eyes for people. With his compassion for people. With his patience for people. With his mercy for his enemies. And if I'm going to patiently endure Jesus. It can't be by gritting my teeth and saying, oh, well, it is what it is. No. If I'm going to patiently endure, it's got to be because, it's got to be because I see you patiently enduring with me. Because I see you patiently enduring in me by your resurrection power. It's because I, I see that promise that you said as you hold out that hope of the tree of life to me that says, in a little while, Jimmy, you're going to see me face to face, so keep seeking my face now. One day, you and I will share together the tree of life. And if I'm going to be committed to theological purity, to the truth of what the Bible teaches, it can't be so that I can show people how smart and right I am. It can't be something that makes my heart cold. It has to make my heart come alive. I have to be committed to the Bible because it teaches me accurately about you, Jesus, because you're the one I want. You're the one I love. I want to be committed to knowing the Bible because the Bible's all about you. You are my first love. I think that might be what it means to redo the works we did at first.
Mount Fellowship, this is this passage has slain me. <laughs> I think probably pastors are more prone to lose their first love than most people because we become all too familiar. So Mountain Fellowship, Jesus is our glorious God and he is our conquering king. He is the first and the last. He died because he loves us and freed us from our sins, but he's alive, he lives. And even now he holds the keys to death, hell, and the grave. But he also holds us. He walks with us. And oh, how he loves us. And he's speaking to us this morning, Mountain Fellowship. He's saying, your hard work is good. Your patient endurance is good. Your love for truth is good. But what I want first is your heart. Remember what it was like to discover that I first loved you. Remember how you first loved me. Remember how you began to have a heart like mine that beats for people with a desire that I would become their first love. I want my first love back, don't you? I know you do. I know you well enough to know. You want your first love back. If you pray for me, Pray that I will return every day to my first love, to Jesus, who loves me and gave himself for me. Pray that being rooted and grounded in his love, I may have strength to comprehend with all of you, saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth of his love, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Pray that for me. And I'll pray it for you. Father, that's what we want. Help us to remember, even as we come to this table, a remembrance. You said, Jesus, when you take this bread, when you take this cup, remember me. And we remember how far we've fallen. And we repent. We turn back to you and say, Jesus, we want our hard work and our patient endurance and our commitment to the Bible to be all about our love for you and your love for us and your love and our love for people. That's what we want. Would you do that in this church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.